Before we uh, hear the arguments in Sony Corporation against Universal City Studios, in case counsel were not in the courtroom at 10 o'clock this morning, I'm authorized to announce that Mr. Justice Brennan is unavoidably absent attending the funeral of a member of his family, and he will participate in the, these cases on the basis of the papers and the, the recording the tape recording of the oral arguments. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Dunlavy, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Hey, you guys. Remember Sony Betamax? Well, if you don't, that means you're not quite as old as me. Back in the 80s, Sony Corporation of America manufactured and sold the Betamax Home Video Tape Recorder, or VTR. Since Universal City Studios owned the copyrights to many of the broadcast TV programs that consumers used Betamax to record, Universal sued Sony for copyright infringement seeking monetary damages, an equitable accounting of profits, and an injunction against the manufacturing and marketing of the VTRs. The district court ruled against Universal, holding that the non-commercial home use of recorded material broadcast over the public airwaves was a fair use of copyrighted works, not copyright infringement. The district court further concluded that even if the home use of a VTR had been considered an infringement, Sony could not be held liable as contributory infringers. But the Court of Appeals reversed, holding Sony liable for contributory infringement. So the question before the Supreme Court in this case was whether Sony's sale of Betamax videotape recorders to the general public constituted contributory infringement of copyrighted public broadcasts under the Copyright Act. The court held that the sale of the VTRs to the general public does not constitute contributory infringement of Universal's copyrights. And American Gen X kids like me were able to continue recording episodes of Family Ties and The Love Boat. And now, the 1984 opinion of the court in Sony Corporation of America, the Universal City Studios. Justice Stevens delivered the opinion of the court. Petitioners manufacture and sell home videotape recorders. Respondents own the copyrights on some of the television programs that are broadcast on the public airwaves. Some members of the general public use videotape recorders sold by petitioners to record some of these broadcasts, as well as a large number of other broadcasts. The question presented is whether the sale of petitioners' copying equipment to the general public violates any of the rights conferred upon respondents by the Copyright Act. Respondents commenced this copyright infringement action against petitioners in the United States District Court for the Central District of California in 1976. Respondents alleged that some individuals had used Betamax videotape recorders, VTRs, to record some of respondents' copyrighted works, which had been exhibited on commercially sponsored television, and contended that these individuals had thereby infringed respondents' copyrights. Respondents further maintained that petitioners were liable for the copyright infringement allegedly committed by Betamax consumers 
because of petitioners' marketing of the Betamax VTRs. Respondents sought no relief against any Betamax consumer. Instead, they sought money damages and an equitable accounting of profits from petitioners, as well as an injunction against the manufacture and marketing of Betamax VTRs. After a lengthy trial, the district court denied respondents all the relief they sought and entered judgment for petitioners. The United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed the district court's judgment on respondents' copyright claim, holding petitioners liable for contributory infringement and ordering the district court to fashion appropriate relief. We granted certiorari. Since we had not completed our study of the case last term, we ordered re-argument. We now reverse. An explanation of our rejection of respondents' unprecedented attempt to impose copyright liability upon the distributors of copying equipment requires a quite detailed recitation of the findings of the district court. In summary, those findings reveal that the average member of the public uses a VTR principally to record a program he cannot view as it is being televised and then to watch it once at a later time. This practice, known as time-shifting, enlarges the television viewing audience. For that reason, a significant amount of television programming may be used in this manner without objection from the owners of the copyrights on the programs. For the same reason, even the two respondents in this case, who do assert objections to time-shifting in this litigation, were unable to prove that the practice has impaired the commercial value of their copyrights or has created any likelihood of future harm. Given these findings, there is no basis in the Copyright Act upon which respondents can hold petitioners liable for distributing VTRs to the general public. The Court of Appeals' holding that respondents are entitled to enjoin the distribution of VTRs to collect royalties on the sale of such equipment or to obtain other relief, if affirmed, would enlarge the scope of respondents' statutory monopolies to encompass control over an article of commerce that is not the subject of copyright protection. Such an expansion of the copyright privilege is beyond the limits of the grants authorized by Congress. Part 1 The two respondents in this action, Universal City Studios, Inc., and Walt Disney Productions, produce and hold the copyrights on a substantial number of motion pictures and other audiovisual works. In the current marketplace, they can exploit their rights in these works in a number of ways. By authorizing theatrical exhibitions, by licensing limited showings on cable and network television, by selling syndication rights for repeated airings on local television stations, and by marketing programs on pre-recorded videotapes or video discs. Some works are suitable for exploitation through all of these avenues, while the market for others is more limited. Petitioner Sony manufactures millions of Betamax videotape recorders and markets these devices through numerous retail establishments, some of which are also petitioners in this action. Sony's Betamax VTR is a mechanism consisting of three basic components. One, a tuner, 
which receives electromagnetic signals transmitted over the television band of the public airwaves and separates them into audio and visual signals. Two, a recorder which records such signals on a magnetic tape. And three, an adapter which converts the audio and visual signals on the tape into a composite signal that can be received by a television set. Several capabilities of the machine are noteworthy. The separate tuner in the Betamax enables it to record a broadcast off one station while the television set is tuned to another channel, permitting the viewer, for example, to watch two simultaneous news broadcasts by watching one live and recording the other for later viewing. Tapes may be reused and programs that have been recorded may be erased either before or after viewing. A timer in the Betamax can be used to activate and deactivate the equipment at predetermined times, enabling an intended viewer to record programs that are transmitted when he or she is not at home. Thus, a person may watch a program at home in the evening, even though it was broadcast while the viewer was at work during the afternoon. The Betamax is also equipped with a pause button and a fast-forward control. The pause button, when depressed, deactivates the recorder until it is released, thus enabling a viewer to omit a commercial advertisement from the recording, provided, of course, that the viewer is present when the program is recorded. The fast-forward control enables the viewer of a previously recorded program to run the tape rapidly when a segment he or she does not desire to see is being played back on the television screen. The respondents and Sony both conducted surveys of the way the Betamax machine was used by several hundred owners during a sample period in 1978. Although there were some differences in the surveys, they both showed that the primary use of the machine for most owners was time-shifting, the practice of recording a program to view it once at a later time, and thereafter erasing it. Time-shifting enables viewers to see programs they otherwise would miss because they are not at home, are occupied with other tasks, or are viewing a program on another station at the time of a broadcast that they desire to watch. Both surveys also showed, however, that a substantial number of interviewees had accumulated libraries of tapes. Sony's survey indicated that over 80% of the interviewees watched at least as much regular television as they had before owning a Betamax. Respondents offered no evidence of decreased television viewing by Betamax owners. Sony introduced considerable evidence describing television programs that could be copied without objection from any copyright holder, with special emphasis on sports, religious, and educational programming. For example, their survey indicated that 7.3% of all Betamax use is to record sports events, and representatives of professional baseball, football, basketball, and hockey testified that they had no objection to the recording of their televised events for home use. Respondents offered opinion evidence concerning the future impact of the unrestricted sale of VTRs on the commercial value of their copyrights. The district court found, however, that they had failed to prove any likelihood of future harm for the use of VTRs for time-shifting.
the district court's decision. The lengthy trial of the case in the district court concerned the private home use of VTRs for recording programs broadcast on the public airwaves without charge to the viewer. No issue concerning the transfer of tapes to other persons, the use of home-recorded tapes for public performances, or the copying of programs transmitted on pay or cable television systems, was raised. The district court concluded that non-commercial home use recording of material broadcast over the public airwaves was a fair use of copyrighted works and did not constitute copyright infringement. It emphasized the fact that the material was broadcast free to the public at large, the non-commercial character of the use, and the private character of the activity conducted entirely within the home. Moreover, the court found that the purpose of this use served the public interest in increasing access to television programming, an interest that is consistent with the First Amendment policy of providing the fullest possible access to information through the public airwaves. Even when an entire copyrighted work was recorded, the district court regarded the copying as fair use because there is no accompanying reduction in the market for plaintiff's original work. As an independent ground of decision, the district court also concluded that Sony could not be held liable as a contributory infringer, even if the home use of a VTR was considered an infringing use. The district court noted that Sony had no direct involvement with any Betamax purchasers who recorded copyrighted works off the air. Sony's advertising was silent on the subject of possible copyright infringement, but its instruction booklet contained the following statement. Television programs, films, videotapes, and other materials may be copyrighted. Unauthorized recording of such material may be contrary to the provisions of the United States copyright laws. The district court assumed that Sony had constructive knowledge of the probability that the Betamax machine would be used to record copyrighted programs, but found that Sony merely sold a product capable of a variety of uses, some of them allegedly infringing. It reasoned, Selling a staple article of commerce, for example, a typewriter, a recorder, a camera, a photocopying machine, technically contributes to any infringing use subsequently made thereof. But this kind of contribution, if deemed sufficient as a basis for liability, would expand the theory beyond precedent and arguably beyond judicial management. Commerce would indeed be hampered if manufacturers of staple items were held liable as contributory infringers whenever they constructively knew that some purchasers, on some occasions, would use their product for a purpose which a court later deemed, as a matter of first impression, to be an infringement. Finally, the district court discussed the respondent's prayer for injunctive relief, noting that they had asked for an injunction either preventing the future sale of Betamax machines or requiring that the machines be rendered incapable of recording copyrighted works off the air. The court stated that it had found no case in which the manufacturers, distributors, or retailers and advertisers of the instrument enabling the infringement were sued by the copyright holders, and that the request for relief in this case is unique.
it concluded that an injunction was wholly inappropriate because any possible harm to respondents was outweighed by the fact that the Betamax could still legally be used to record non-copyrighted material or material whose owners consented to the copying. An injunction would deprive the public of the ability to use the Betamax for this non-infringing, off-the-air recording. The Court of Appeals Decision The Court of Appeals reversed the District Court's judgment on respondents' copyright claim. It did not set aside any of the District Court's findings of fact. Rather, it concluded as a matter of law that the home use of a VTR was not a fair use, because it was not a productive use. It therefore held that it was unnecessary for plaintiffs to prove any harm to the potential market for the copyrighted works, but then observed that it seemed clear that the cumulative effect of mass reproduction made possible by the VTRs would tend to diminish the potential market for respondents' works. On the issue of contributory infringement, the Court of Appeals first rejected the analogy to staple articles of commerce, such as tape recorders or photocopying machines. It noted that such machines may have substantial benefit for some purposes and do not even remotely raise copyright problems. VTRs, however, are sold for the primary purpose of reproducing television programming, and virtually all such programming is copyrighted material. The Court of Appeals concluded, therefore, that VTRs were not suitable for any substantial, non-infringing use, even if some copyright owners elect not to enforce their rights. The Court of Appeals concluded, therefore, that VTRs were not suitable for any substantial, non-infringing use, even if some copyright owners elect not to enforce their rights. The Court of Appeals also rejected the District Court's reliance on Sony's lack of knowledge that home use constituted infringement. Assuming that the statutory provisions defining the remedies for infringement applied also to the non-statutory tort of contributory infringement, the court stated that a defendant's good faith would merely reduce his damages liability, but would not excuse the infringing conduct. It held that Sony was chargeable with knowledge of the homeowner's infringing activity because the reproduction of copyrighted materials was either the most conspicuous use or the major use of the Betamax product. On the matter of relief, the Court of Appeals concluded that statutory damages may be appropriate and that the district court should reconsider its determination that an injunction would not be an appropriate remedy, and referring to the analogous photocopying area, suggested that a continuing royalty pursuant to a judicially created compulsory license may very well be an acceptable resolution of the relief issue. Part 2. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution provides, The Congress shall have power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. The monopoly privileges that Congress may authorize are neither unlimited nor primarily designed to provide a special private benefit. Rather, the limited grant is a means by which an important public purpose may be achieved. <laughs> 
It is intended to motivate the creative activity of authors and inventors by the provision of a special reward and to allow the public access to the products of their genius after the limited period of exclusive control has expired. The sole interest of the United States and the primary object in conferring the monopoly lie in the general benefits derived by the public from the labors of authors. It is said that reward to the author or artist serves to induce release to the public of the products of his creative genius. The copyright law, like the patent statutes, makes reward to the owner a secondary consideration. In Fox Film Corp. v. Doyle, Chief Justice Hughes spoke as follows respecting the copyright monopoly granted by Congress. As the text of the Constitution makes plain, it is Congress that has been assigned the task of defining the scope of the limited monopoly that should be granted to authors or to inventors in order to give the public appropriate access to their work product. Because this task involves a difficult balance between the interests of authors and inventors in the control and exploitation of their writings and discoveries, on the one hand, and society's competing interest in the free flow of ideas, information, and commerce, on the other hand, our patent and copyright statutes have been amended repeatedly. From its beginning, the law of copyright has developed in response to significant changes in technology. Indeed, it was the invention of a new form of copying equipment, the printing press, that gave rise to the original need for copyright protection. Repeatedly, as new developments have occurred in this country, it has been the Congress that has fashioned the new rules that new technology made necessary. Thus, long before the enactment of the Copyright Act of 1909, it was settled that the protection given to copyright is wholly statutory. The remedies for infringement are only those prescribed by Congress. Copyright protection subsists in original works of authorship fixed in any tangible medium of expression. This protection has never accorded the copyright owner complete control over all possible uses of his work. Rather, the Copyright Act grants the copyright holder exclusive rights to use and to authorize the use of his work in five qualified ways, including reproduction of the copyrighted work in copies. All reproductions of the work, however, are not within the exclusive domain of the copyright owner. Some are in the public domain. Any individual may reproduce a copyrighted work for a fair use, the copyright owner does not possess the exclusive right to such a use. Anyone who violates any of the exclusive rights of the copyright owner, that is, anyone who trespasses into his exclusive domain by using or authorizing the use of the copyrighted work in one of the five ways set forth in the statute, is an infringer of the copyright. Conversely, anyone who is authorized by the copyright owner to use the copyrighted work in a way specified in the statute or who makes a fair use of the work is not an infringer of the copyright with respect to such use. Anyone who violates any of the exclusive rights of the copyright owner that is, anyone who trespasses into his exclusive domain by using or authorizing the use of the copyrighted work in one of the five ways set forth in the statute, 
is an infringer of the copyright. Conversely, anyone who is authorized by the copyright owner to use the copyrighted work in a way specified in the statute or who makes a fair use of the work is not an infringer of the copyright with respect to such use. The Copyright Act provides the owner of a copyright with a potent arsenal of remedies against an infringer of his work, including an injunction to restrain the infringer from violating his rights, the impoundment and destruction of all reproductions of his work made in violation of his rights, a recovery of his actual damages, and any additional profits realized by the infringer or a recovery of statutory damages and attorney's fees. The two respondents in this case do not seek relief against the Betamax users who have allegedly infringed their copyrights. Moreover, this is not a class action on behalf of all copyright owners who license their works for television broadcast, and respondents have no right to invoke whatever rights other copyright holders may have to bring infringement actions based on Betamax copying of their works. As was made clear by their own evidence, the copying of the respondents' programs represents a small portion of the total use of VTRs. Part 3. The Copyright Act does not expressly render anyone liable for infringement committed by another. In contrast, the Patent Act expressly brands anyone who actively induces infringement of a patent as an infringer and further imposes liability on certain individuals labeled contributory infringers. The absence of such express language in the copyright statute does not preclude the imposition of liability for copyright infringements on certain parties who have not themselves engaged in the infringing activity. For vicarious liability is imposed in virtually all areas of the law, and the concept of contributory infringement is merely a species of the broader problem of identifying the circumstances in which it is just to hold one individual accountable for the actions of another. Such circumstances were plainly present in Calum Co. v. Harper Brothers, 1911, the copyright decision of this court on which respondents place their principal reliance. In Calum, the court held that the producer of an unauthorized film dramatization of the copyrighted book Ben-Hur was liable for his sell of the motion picture to jobbers, who in turn arranged for the commercial exhibition of the film. Justice Holmes, writing for the court, explained, The defendant not only expected, but invoked by advertisement, the use of its films for dramatic reproduction of the story. That was the most conspicuous purpose for which they could be used, and the one for which especially they were made. If the defendant did not contribute to the infringement, it is impossible to do so except by taking part in the final act. It is liable on principles recognized in every part of the law. The use for which the item sold in Calum had been especially made was, of course, to display the performance that had already been recorded upon it. The producer had personally appropriated the copyright owner's protected work, and as the owner of the tangible medium of expression upon which the protected work was recorded, authorized that use by his sell of the film to jobbers. But that use of the film was not his to authorize, 
The copyright owner possessed the exclusive right to authorize public performances of his work. Further, the producer personally advertised the unauthorized public performances, dispelling any possible doubt as to the use of the film which he had authorized. Respondents argue that Calum stands for the proposition that supplying the means to accomplish an infringing activity and encouraging that activity through advertisement are sufficient to establish liability for copyright infringement. This argument rests on a gross generalization that cannot withstand scrutiny. The producer in Calum did not merely provide the means to accomplish an infringing activity. The producer supplied the work itself, albeit in a new medium of expression. Sony, in the instant case, does not supply Betamax consumers with respondents' works. Respondents do. Sony supplies a piece of equipment that is generally capable of copying the entire range of programs that may be televised. Those that are uncopyrighted, those that are copyrighted but may be copied without objection from the copyright holder, and those that the copyright holder would prefer not to have copied. The Betamax can be used to make authorized or unauthorized uses of copyrighted works, but the range from its potential use is much broader than the particular infringing use of the film Ben-Hur involved in Calum. Calum does not support respondents' novel theory of liability. Justice Holmes stated that the producer had contributed to the infringement of the copyright, and the label contributory infringement has been applied in a number of lower court copyright cases involving an ongoing relationship between the direct infringer and the contributory infringer at the time the infringing conduct occurred. In such cases, as in other situations in which the imposition of vicarious liability is manifestly just, the contributory infringer was in a position to control the use of copyrighted works by others and had authorized the use without permission from the copyright owner. This case, however, plainly does not fall in that category. The only contact between Sony and the users of the Betamax that is disclosed by this record occurred at the moment of sale. The district court expressly found that no employee of Sony, Sonim, or DDBI had either direct involvement with the allegedly infringing activity or direct contact with purchasers of Betamax who recorded copyrighted works off the air. And it further found that there was no evidence that any of the copies made by the Griffiths or the other individual witnesses in this suit were influenced or encouraged by Sony's advertisements. If vicarious liability is to be imposed on Sony in this case, it must rest on the fact that it has sold equipment with constructive knowledge of the fact that its customers may use that equipment to make unauthorized copies of copyrighted material. There is no precedent in the law of copyright for the imposition of vicarious liability on such a theory. The closest analogy is provided by the patent law cases to which it is appropriate to refer because of the historic kinship between patent law and copyright law. 
In the Patent Act, both the concept of infringement and the concept of contributory infringement are expressly defined by statute. The prohibition against contributory infringement is confined to the knowing sale of a component especially made for use in connection with a particular patent. There is no suggestion in the statute that one patentee may object to the sale of a product that might be used in connection with other patents. Moreover, the Act expressly provides that the sale of a staple article or commodity of commerce suitable for substantial non-infringing use is not contributory infringement. When a charge of contributory infringement is predicated entirely on the sale of an article of commerce that is used by the purchaser to infringe a patent, the public interest in access to that article of commerce is necessarily implicated. A finding of contributory infringement does not, of course, remove the article from the market altogether. It does, however, give the patentee effective control over the sale of that item. Indeed, a finding of contributory infringement is normally the functional equivalent of holding that the disputed article is within the monopoly granted to the patentee. For that reason, in contributory infringement cases arising under the patent laws, the court has always recognized the critical importance of not allowing the patentee to extend his monopoly beyond the limits of his specific grant. These cases deny the patentee any right to control the distribution of unpatented articles unless they are unsuited for any commercial non-infringing use. Unless a commodity has no use except through practice of the patented method, the patentee has no right to claim that its distribution constitutes contributory infringement. To form the basis for contributory infringement, the item must almost be uniquely suited as a component of the patented invention. A sale of an article which though adapted to an infringing use, is also adapted to other and lawful uses, is not enough to make the seller a contributory infringer. Such a rule would block the wheels of commerce. We recognize there are substantial differences between the patent and copyright laws. But in both areas, the contributory infringement doctrine is grounded on the recognition that adequate protection of a monopoly may require the courts to look beyond actual duplication of a device or publication to the products or activities that make such duplication possible. The staple article of commerce doctrine must strike a balance between a copyright holder's legitimate demand for effective, not merely symbolic, protection of the statutory monopoly and the rights of others freely to engage in substantially unrelated areas of commerce. Accordingly, the sale of copying equipment like the sale of other articles of commerce, does not constitute contributory infringement if the product is widely used for legitimate, unobjectionable purposes. Indeed, it need merely be capable of substantial non-infringing uses. Part 4 The question is thus 
whether the Betamax is capable of commercially significant non-infringing uses. In order to resolve that question, we need not explore all the different potential uses of the machine and determine whether or not they would constitute infringement. Rather, we need only consider whether, on the basis of the facts as found by the district court, a significant number of them would be non-infringing. Moreover, in order to resolve this case, we need not give precise content to the question of how much use is commercially significant. For one potential use of the Betamax plainly satisfies this standard, however it is understood. Private, non-commercial, time-shifting in the home. It does so both a because respondents have no right to prevent other copyright holders from authorizing it for their programs, and b because the district court's factual findings reveal that even the unauthorized home time-shifting of respondents' programs is legitimate fair use. A. Authorized time-shifting Each of the respondents owns a large inventory of valuable copyrights, but in the total spectrum of television programming, their combined market share is small. The exact percentage is not specified, but it is well below 10%. If they were to prevail, the outcome of this litigation would have a significant impact on both the producers and the viewers of the remaining 90% of the programming in the nation. No doubt, many other producers share respondents' concern about the possible consequences of unrestricted copying. Nevertheless, the findings of the district court make it clear that time-shifting may enlarge the total viewing audience and that many producers are willing to allow private time-shifting to continue, at least for an experimental time period. The district court found... Even if it were deemed that home use recording of copyrighted material constituted infringement, the Betamax could still legally be used to record non-copyrighted material or material whose owners consented to the copying. An injunction would deprive the public of the ability to use the Betamax for this non-infringing, off-the-air recording. Defendants introduced considerable testimony at trial about the potential for such copying of sports, religious, educational, and other programming. This included testimony from representatives of the offices of the commissioners of the National Football, Basketball, Baseball, and Hockey Leagues, and associations. The executive director of National Religious Broadcasters, and various educational communications agencies. Plaintiffs attack the weight of the testimony offered and also contend that an injunction is warranted because infringing uses outweigh non-infringing uses. Whatever the future percentage of legal versus illegal home use recording might be, an injunction which seeks to deprive the public of the very tool or article of commerce capable of some non-infringing use would be an extremely harsh remedy, as well as one unprecedented in copyright law. Although the district court made these statements in the context of considering the propriety of injunctive relief, the statements constitute a finding that the evidence concerning sports, religious, educational, and other programming was sufficient to establish a significant quantity of broadcasting whose copying is now authorized 
and a significant potential for future authorized copying. That finding is amply supported by the record. In addition to the religious and sports officials identified explicitly by the district court, two items in the record deserve specific mention. First is the testimony of John Keniston, the station manager of Channel 58, an educational station in Los Angeles affiliated with the Public Broadcasting Service. He explained and authenticated the station's published guide to its programs. For each program, the guide tells whether unlimited home taping is authorized, home taping is authorized subject to certain restrictions, or home taping is not authorized at all. The spring 1978 edition of the guide described 107 programs, 62 of those programs, or 58%, authorize some home taping. 21 of them, or almost 20%, authorize unrestricted home taping. Second is the testimony of Fred Rogers, president of the corporation that produces and owns the copyright on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The program is carried by more public television stations than any other program. Its audience numbers over 3 million families a day. He testified that he had absolutely no objection to home taping for non-commercial use and expressed the opinion that it is a real service to families to be able to record children's programs and to show them at appropriate times. If there are millions of owners of VTRs who make copies of televised sports events, religious broadcasts, and educational programs such as Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and if the proprietors of those programs welcome the practice, the business of supplying the equipment that makes such copying feasible should not be stifled simply because the equipment is used by some individuals to make unauthorized reproductions of respondents' works. The respondents do not represent a class composed of all copyright holders. Yet a finding of contributory infringement would inevitably frustrate the interests of broadcasters in reaching the portion of their audience that is available only through time-shifting. Of course, the fact that other copyright holders may welcome the practice of time-shifting does not mean that respondents should be deemed to have granted a license to copy their programs. Third-party conduct would be wholly irrelevant in an action for direct infringement of respondents' copyrights. But in an action for contributory infringement, against the seller of copying equipment, the copyright holder may not prevail unless the relief that he seeks affects only his programs or unless he speaks for virtually all copyright holders with an interest in the outcome. In this case, the record makes it perfectly clear that there are many important producers of national and local television programs who find nothing objectionable about the enlargement in the size of the television audience that results from the practice of time-shifting for private home use. The seller of the equipment that expands those producers' audiences cannot be a contributory infringer if, as is true in this case, it has had no direct involvement with any infringing activity. B. Unauthorized time-shifting Even unauthorized uses of a copyrighted work are not necessarily infringing. An unlicensed use of the copyright 
is not an infringement unless it conflicts with one of the specific exclusive rights conferred by the copyright statute. Moreover, the definition of exclusive rights in Section 106 of the present Act is prefaced by the words subject to Sections 107 through 118. Those sections describe a variety of uses of copyrighted material that are not infringements of copyright, notwithstanding the provisions of Section 106. The most pertinent in this case is Section 107, the legislative endorsement of the Doctrine of Fair Use. That section identifies various factors that enable a court to apply an equitable rule of reason to particular claims of infringement. Although not conclusive, the first factor requires that the commercial or nonprofit character of an activity be weighed in any fair use decision. If the Betamax were used to make copies for a commercial or profit-making purpose, such use would presumptively be unfair. That section identifies various factors that enable a court to apply an equitable rule of reason analysis to particular claims of infringement. Although not conclusive, the first factor requires that the commercial or nonprofit character of an activity be weighed in any fair use decision. If the Betamax were used to make copies for a commercial or profit-making purpose, such use would presumptively be unfair. The contrary presumption is appropriate here, however, because the district court's findings plainly establish that time-shifting for private home use must be characterized as a non-commercial nonprofit activity. Moreover, when one considers the nature of a televised, copyrighted, audiovisual work, and that time-shifting merely enables a viewer to see such a work which he had been invited to witness in its entirety, free of charge, the fact that the entire work is reproduced does not have its ordinary effect of militating against a finding of fair use. This is not, however, the end of the inquiry because Congress has also directed us to consider the effect of the use upon the potential market or value of the copyrighted work. The purpose of copyright is to create incentives for creative effort. Even copying for non-commercial purposes may impair the copyright holder's ability to obtain the rewards that Congress intended him to have. But a use that has no demonstrable effect upon the potential market for, or the value of, the copyrighted work need not be prohibited in order to protect the author's incentive to create. The prohibition of such non-commercial uses would merely inhibit access to ideas without any countervailing benefit. Thus, although every commercial use of copyrighted material is presumptively an unfair exploitation of the monopoly privilege that belongs to the owner of the copyright, non-commercial uses are a different matter. A challenge to a non-commercial use of a copyrighted work requires proof either that the particular use is harmful or that... If it should become widespread, it would adversely affect the potential market for the copyrighted work. Actual present harm need not be shown. Such a requirement would leave the copyright holder with no defense against predictable damage, nor is it necessary to show 
with certainty that future harm will result. What is necessary is a showing by a preponderance of the evidence that some meaningful likelihood of future harm exists. If the intended use is for commercial gain, that likelihood may be presumed. But if it is for a non-commercial purpose, the likelihood must be demonstrated. In this case, respondents failed to carry their burden with regard to home time shifting. The district court described respondents' evidence as follows. Plaintiffs' experts admitted at several points in the trial that the time shifting without librarying would result in not a great deal of harm. Plaintiff's greatest concern about time shifting is with a point of important philosophy that transcends even commercial judgment. They fear that, with any Betamax usage, invisible boundaries are passed. The copyright owner has lost control over his program. Later in its opinion, the district court observed, Most of plaintiffs' predictions of harm hinge on speculation about audience viewing patterns and ratings, a measurement system which Sidney Scheinberg, MCA's president, calls a black art because of the significant level of imprecision involved in the calculations. There was no need for the district court to say much about past harm. Plaintiffs have admitted that no actual harm to their copyrights has occurred to date. On the question of potential future harm from time shifting, the district court offered a more detailed analysis of the evidence. It rejected respondents' fear that persons watching the original telecast of a program will not be measured in the live audience and the ratings and revenues will decrease. By observing that current measurement technology allows the Betamax audience to be reflected, it rejected respondents' prediction that live television or movie audiences will decrease as more people watch Betamax tapes as an alternative, with the observation that there is no factual basis for the underlying assumption. It rejected respondents' fear that time-shifting will reduce audiences for telecast reruns and concluded instead that given current market practices, this should aid plaintiffs rather than harm them. And it declared that respondents' suggestion that theater or film rental exhibition of a program will suffer because of time-shift recording of that program lacks merit. After completing that review, the district court restated its overall conclusion several times in several different ways. Harm from time-shifting is speculative and, at best, minimal. The audience benefits from the time-shifting capability have already been discussed. It is not implausible that benefits could also accrue to plaintiffs, broadcasters, and advertisers, as the Betamax makes it possible for more persons to view their broadcasts. No likelihood of harm was shown at trial and plaintiffs admitted that there had been no actual harm to date. Testimony at trial suggested that Betamax may require adjustments in marketing strategy, but it did not establish even a likelihood of harm. Television production by plaintiffs today is more profitable than it has ever been, and in five weeks of trial, there was no concrete evidence to suggest that the Betamax will change the studio's financial picture. The district court's conclusions are buttressed by the fact that, to the extent time-shifting expands public access 
to freely broadcast television programs, it yields societal benefits. In Community Television of Southern California v. Gottfried, we acknowledged the public interest in making television broadcasting more available. Conceitedly, that interest is not unlimited. It supports an interpretation of the concept of fair use that requires the copyright holder to demonstrate some likelihood of harm before he may condemn a private act of time-shifting as a violation of federal law. When these factors are all weighed in the equitable rule of reason balance, we must conclude that this record amply supports the district court's conclusion that home time-shifting is fair use. In light of the findings of the district court regarding the state of the empirical data, it is clear that the Court of Appeals erred in holding that the statute, as presently written, bars such conduct. In summary, the record and findings of the district court lead us to two conclusions. First, Sony demonstrated a significant likelihood that substantial numbers of copyright holders who license their works for broadcast on free television would not object to having their broadcasts time-shifted by private viewers. And second, respondents failed to demonstrate that time-shifting would cause any likelihood of non-minimal harm to the potential market for, or the value of, their copyrighted works. The Betamax is, therefore, capable of substantial non-infringing uses. Sony's sale of such equipment to the general public does not constitute contributory infringement of respondents' copyrights. Part 5 the direction of Article 1 is that Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and the useful arts, when, as here, the Constitution is permissive, the sign of how far Congress has chosen to go can come only from Congress. One may search the Copyright Act in vain for any sign that the elected representatives of the millions of people who watch television every day have made it unlawful to copy a program for later viewing at home, or have enacted a flat prohibition against the sale of machines that make such copying possible. It may well be that Congress will take a fresh look at this new technology, just as it so often has examined other innovations in the past. But it is not our job to apply laws that have not yet been written. Applying the copyright statute as it now reads to the facts as they have been developed in this case, the judgment of the Court of Appeals must be reversed. It is so ordered. <laughs> We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the Contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.